Hey, Lab Rats, it's Goose here. You're obviously listening to the Investor Lab, and I just want to let you know a little bit about today's episode. Today was a very special episode for me, and I think it's going to be very special for you too. I interviewed Jacob Field. He is the founder of Ripe House Private Advisory, one of the most preeminent and resourceful and powerful research teams in the country. And they're a team that we personally use at Dash.Buyers Buyers Agents to help guide and navigate our property purchase decisions as well. Uh, he is a successful investor personally and has a lot of great insights on the market. He also recently had spearheaded a research report called COVID-19 versus property research. And that's going to be available as a downloadable. So head to the investorlab.com.au to grab a copy of that. And that that, re- that report really covered questions like, you know, what areas are going to be most affected by the coronavirus, you know, the impacts of Airbnbs, unemployment, you know, where are the potential safe havens to invest in and all kinds of stuff. So if you are an investor at the moment and you are wondering where to invest or what potential impacts are going to happen to your property um, or you're thinking about getting into the market at the moment, this is an absolute diamond episode for you. We cover all kinds of stuff, you know, the drivers behind good property markets, what to expect, where to go, how to navigate all of this kind of stuff. It was genuinely insightful, deeply impactful. And I, I think that this is probably going to be one of the best episodes that we've had so far. I know that you're going to get a hell of a lot out of it. Now, as I mentioned, there's a downloadable that you're going to be able to get from the investorlab.com.au. And I also want to invite you as well. So we have in, we have launched the Investor Lab online community. So head to the investorlab.com.au. You'll see a link to the community page there. Inside that community, we are going to be exposing insider secrets that are going to allow you to accelerate your property uh, journey and your personal wealth journey in many, 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 many ways. And I encourage you to check it out. It's going to be super high value. We're going to have people just like Jacob actually um, coming in and sharing some insights that are going to help navigate that journey as well as personal tools, tips, tricks, um, location deep dives, research, all kinds of stuff that's going to help accelerate where you are from where you are to where you want to be. And I know that that's going to be super powerful for you too. So if you've enjoyed this episode, of course, make sure you subscribe and share. I know that there's going to be some great takeaways for you in this um, because there was for me as well, personally. We spoke about things like swarm intelligence, key metrics around what defines a good area. There's so much to unpack that I can't possibly list it all right now. Um, I encourage you to reach out and let me know what you got most out of it as well. But of course, share this with a friend, a loved one, somebody else who's going to benefit from this information and help guide their journey too because what we're most passionate about here at the Investor Lab and at Dash Buyers Agents is helping people to do more, be more, and achieve more. And I know that this is going to be beneficial to you. So thanks so much. Enjoy. I'll see you on the inside. Hello and welcome to the Investor Lab and my name's Goose and today I am very, very, very excited to be welcoming uh, a very esteemed guest, uh, a man who I respect greatly, who's been uh, a very big influence and shaper of my personal property journey, our business as Dashdot and is a wealth of information and knowledge about the uh, Australian property market. Now, 
This man runs a private research facility, which is basically a private advisory to some of the highest level uh, property professionals in the country. He's an avid data enthusiast and also a passionate property investor himself. And I'd like to welcome Jacob Field. How are you today? <laughs> what an intro. I'm very well now. Thank you. That's, <laughs> that's awesome. It's a pleasure to be here and I'm really looking forward to jumping into some, I guess, vibrant conversation, which we do regularly have. Uh, but it's a little bit different, obviously, today because we're uh, speaking to the nation and hopefully delving into some interesting topics about, you know, what's happening with COVID-19, but, you know, in a wider sense, property. So I'm really looking forward to it. I think our back and forth is, uh, you know, very enjoyable and, and we get into some interesting uh, little niches of, of conversation. So to, to have a wider audience is going to be exciting. I Absolutely. love what you do. I love what you and Gabby both do at Dash Shot and uh, it's inspiring to see. Uh, I'm, I'm sounding like a little bit older than I probably am, but a, a younger generation of of, of uh property people coming through and, and doing some really cool things. So it's exciting to be a part of. Well, thanks, mate. Thanks. And I'm sure we're going to have a lot of, have a lot of fun. Now, as you touched on there, the, the big thing that we want to uh, unpack today is um, you recently spearheaded a, um, a research report, a very comprehensive and very enlightening research report based around COVID-19 versus the Australian property market. And we'll get to that. And I really want to dig into that because I think that's obviously hyper-relevant. There's, there's over 2 million property investors in Australia and everyone's impacted. There's a lot of stuff going on with um, you know, tenancy law changes and all kinds of stuff, Airbnbs becoming illegal and we're really going to dig mm, into that. Mm. But, but I want to just kind of take it a little step back, right? Because I know you and I know you quite well, but the mm. people listening have no idea who you are. And I really want to mm, get, mm. give a bit of a framework and a bit of a setting as to actually who the hell you are and why they should even listen to the research that you've, 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 uh, you've put together and, and which I was lucky enough to participate in as well, which was great. So absolutely. A, why don't we just like take a little step back and why don't you give us a little bit of insight into your, like how you started in your property journey and actually what led you into wanting to start researching and, and getting to where you are? Yeah, okay. Um, I won't go too far into the rabbit hole because <laughs> it's a little, <laughs> bit, a little bit scary, but why don't I, I go back to just for a little bit of context, uh, probably when I started investing uh, around the early 2000s. So I was uh, you know, around 20 when I built my first property, bought another one quite quickly after that that you know, sort of did pretty well for me. I think my first property I paid $145,000 for, rented for $240 uh, pretty much straight off the bat. Uh, I was lucky enough also to get the first home buyers grants as well on that. So it was a little bit lax probably when that first emerged. Can, can, uh, can I ask where the, can I ask where that was? Like where did you and so you're I might, we don't need to go into how old you are now, mm. but that was I'm assuming roughly about say twenty years ago. Um, <laughs> fifteen, come on. No. 15, 15, okay. <laughs> seventeen. So, but, seventeen. So, so where did you buy that where was that property that you bought for hundred and forty five thousand dollars that rented at two hundred and forty bucks? Yeah, it was actually in West Hobart in here in Hobart. So, look, probably rewinding a little bit of context, uh, I, I was an active saver. You know, I read, uh, you know, I, I was quite interested in, in generating wealth from an early age. Uh, my dad, I, I lived with my dad sort of from the age of 10 and he was on the pension for most of that. So, we, um, we really, you know, I was sort of probably in charge of the family finances to a large degree, you know. <laughs> I was trying to get him to save up for a BMW and... Um, you know, we were car enthusiasts and, and then I sort of got old enough where we weren't saving fast enough that I ended up doing my own saving and bought my own car. And I went to look at a property for $80,000 in the best suburb in Hobart or one of the best suburbs in Hobart, probably around 2001 when I was just old enough to buy. 
Uh, and I had the, I, you know, had the money ready to go on. Dad actually talked me out of it. He said, "Look, you're taking on too much risk. You know, you don't want to be in debt for the rest of your life." So I went and took that money and I bought a, a you know, top of the line sports car in from from Japan without even without even seeing the car. I just bought it on the internet, sight unseen from an auction. Uh, it arrived here and I had to comply it and had to. It was going to cost me four grand to insure it, so I couldn't insure it. Uh, and then you know I realised you know that was. What, you, what else you could do with your money, I guess, and um, <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely so. That is definitely something else you can do with your money. That is definitely something else. Uh, look, that wasn't. I, I put that on the market. I couldn't really. I couldn't drive it. I couldn't insure it. So I put that on the market. Actually, probably listen to mum more in that in that sense. She would always um, be more interested in, in in dollars and cents, I guess. And um, that's where I bought my first property. So in that time, you know, Hobart was really moving and. The property was probably inferior to the first property I looked at, uh, and I paid 145 grand for it as a two-bedroom property uh, that rented for 240 in West Hobart. Uh, it's look, this, this is probably an interesting story. So I, I've sold down a lot of my portfolio over the years to lower risk, to lower my LVR, and to remove a lot of the regionals that I've purchased. Um, I'm sort of more interested in manufacturing equity now, and uh, I, I guess. Not, not having a, a noose around my neck with, with a high maintenance property portfolio. Uh, but that particular property I paid 145000 for and recently sold that for 470000 Interesting. Okay, so that's, that's 15 years, 16 years. Um, we, we, you know, we gutted it. We did a pretty decent reno on it, but the cost on that would have been about seventy or 80000 So that sort of shows the power of compounding over multiple cycles going, you know, it's almost a tripling it is, it looks effectively a tripling minus cost of value in under 20 years. Yeah, um, that's, that's, that, that's awesome. Can I, can I ask two bedroom, was that, a, was that a unit or an apartment or was that a... Conjoined, conjoined villa. Yeah, okay. Uh, and that's, that's the only one I've ever really... At that time as well, I was, I was a big follower of Summersoft Property Forum. Um, it's sort of, it's not operating anymore, but Jan Summers, the founder of that, she, she was sort of wrote, wrote some amazing books that were quite formative for me. Uh, one of the more wealth through residential property. I definitely recommend checking that out. That's when it really clicked for me. You know, I sold my Telstra shares. I sold, you know, I, I looked at the cash in my bank and thought, hang on, this is not compounding. Uh, you know, I looked at it like a game of Monopoly and the, and the book really broke it down then. And back then you can actually get 103% LVRs on your loans and serviceability wasn't really a problem or an issue. Uh, you know, the banks were quite free reeling there. And then, um, yeah, so I was able to sort of see that book and go, right, I can get one, get the equity out of that by two, get the equity out of that by four. And it's literally like a, you know, a, a pyramid and, um, you know, of the good type probably. But, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a pyramid, it, not a pyramid scheme. <laughs> no, no, no. A exponential growth. That's what I like to call it. Yes. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. But it, I mean, it, it was a little bit easier then when, when you didn't actually have to save for deposits. Um, you know, things could really move. You could weigh a property up on, uh, you know, some of my friends at the time had were buying tens of properties, uh, you know, if not in a year, in a month. Um, you know, they've gone on to have hundreds of properties in their portfolio. I stopped a little bit short of that, obviously. But, um, you know, it did get, uh, that, that's the time that you're in. You could literally go shopping. If you could find a deal that stacked up, you could whack in your portfolio and it would happen very quickly. Wow. Well, how times have changed, hey? Um, do you, just out of curiosity, do you think that, do you think it's a good thing that things have changed? Obviously, you know, you're talking about people who uh, amassed hundreds of properties and tens in a month and all of that kind of stuff, and it was pretty freewheeling. Now, that obviously 
sounds pretty exciting as an investor. We can be like, oh, you know, anytime I'm like, I just want to go buy more properties, right? I love yeah, it, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you think that that was a good thing or do you think that some of the changes or the more the restrictions now are, are better? What, what is your opinion on that as someone who has seen both sides of that? Oh, look, it, it's, a, it, it's a completely different world that we live in now in Australia uh, only because, you know, back when I first started investing and, and you know, there weren't many property investors, okay? So it's not something you could talk about. You, you couldn't, it, was, it wasn't social media. So if you spoke about property investing, well, to my mates while I was at uni, they would have, you know, they, well, they didn't like me talking about it to start with and they'd tell me to, you know, to, you know, politely stop talking about it. Um, but it Why? wasn't the sort of... Why? Why? Why did they have that perspective? Property investing, it just wasn't really known. It wasn't a large, it wasn't a, a, a conversation topic. It wasn't a barbecue topic. Uh, there weren't many property investors. So when I say you could get a 103% LVR, um, you know, it was difficult sometimes to find a broker or a bank that would loan you money as an investor. So if you, even if you go back even a generation before me, uh, when there was even fewer property investors, you know, it was almost a business loan that you were getting them to buy a property. So as you're sort of coming through when I was sort of starting to buy a property, you really had to be on the cutting edge of finding finance, structuring portfolios. You know, you, ha- you were learning all that sort of the first time. Uh, and that's why they sort of hadn't really caught on with, with finance and you were able to access those lines, you know, loans quite widespread. Having said that, the interest rates were 7 or 8%. So we were basically, to be able to purchase properties on volume, you had to still have cash flow positive properties. So, you know, I draw my I drew my line at 10% as a minimum yield, basically after cost you could hit and you could continue to purchase. Okay, so what that meant is there, there was a, a very conflicting or, you know, a polar opposites between cash flow and growth. So what we're talking about is properties that have high cash flow. I'm talking 10% positive, a 10% yield or, or above, and you know growth. You know you had to have one or the other back then, okay? Because um, you know now you have so many more investors driving up investment class properties. Um, yields have pulled back um, because people are willing to accept lower and lower yields. On the growth side, you know we've been through very strong growth. You know I don't really get into the macro stuff too too much, but you know we've obviously had a lot of growth. Uh, over the last decade in many of our key capitals and is that driven by finance and the ability to access funding as an investor class potentially so you sometimes now you don't have to have that trade-off between growth and yield uh, where previously you know when I was first starting out you really had one or the other mm. um, and you know you definitely did flip-flop between high cash flow assets uh, you know, to fire up, to allow you to do some cosmetic renos, to pull the equity out into a high growth asset, and you really had to make the decision which one next. Mm-hmm. Where now, I think you can you can more openly have your cake and eat it too. Um, so it's probably a function of the finance available and the level of funding and the level of investors in the market. I actually haven't thought about it before, Goose, but it's um, <laughs> it's probably sort of breaking it open a little bit for me. Yeah, awesome, awesome. That's good. Now, look, obviously, you, you mentioned you've sold down a lot of your portfolio. You're restructuring. You're doing all that kind of stuff. And without going into your, you know, per, personal finances, too, how many like how many properties in the last say seventeen years of your investing journey? I mean, how many properties have you bought or sold? Like, how how big did you grow your portfolio? Is there any kind of metrics you can share around that? I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah, um, probably. Look, it's when you sort of go back to the beginning, things haven't really changed. So all the t- terms that we use now, you know, people were doing it 15 years ago, but we just didn't have a term for it. So probably an example, uh, bought a couple of properties down here in Hobart quite quickly, moved to Sydney with my wife, uh, you know, going back a while, wanted to keep investing, you know, part of an online community there, uh, 
wanted to buy and continue to buy in Sydney. Um, went and looked at the property in Mount Druitt. Quickly lost my confidence. We didn't have a clue what I was doing in another city. Didn't buy again for two years. Uh, really started developing a framework to research and analyse property. And that's where I, I started, I guess, professionally working in property. And I founded Right House a few years after that. Um, Look, probably going on, bought a lot of regional properties. We flip-flopped between strategies, but we're always buying larger blocks, always buying properties that could have cosmetic renos, um, always trying to uplift. I guess I was a rent investor. It wasn't until my sixth property I was actually able to live in myself. Um, on from that, you know, continued to buy, continued to invest throughout, but then obviously life gets in the way as well. So we had a couple of children. Um, then it's all about, for me, I guess I was investing in companies and business. Um, so you know, now that's probably my focus. Uh, if I'm to look at an investment now as, a, as an investment property, it needs to be something where I can really utilize all of my skills to manufacture equity. But I'm getting compounding in my portfolio through business and through other assets and, and the blue chip assets that I still hold. So, you know, LVR at the moment, uh, it's probably around 10 or 12% on my portfolio. Wow. Um, and I'm looking at still... So the way that I would structure in, so I'm looking at a, at a particular opportunity at the moment, which has probably got a 50 to 60% uplift in 12 months. Um, you know, it's going to cost total all said and done, you know, 4.2 million total to purchase. Um, that's the type of opportunity where uh, it's actually a hotel that would be strata titled and broken up into seven apartments. Um, that's, that's the sort of opportunity that, that, that you know, is, is interesting and can work. Uh, and, you know, I can utilise capital to get into that and out of um, where it's not really changing the risk profile of my portfolio all that much. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's um, look, I've gone through the, the journey, I guess, where having a large portfolio, you're, you know, you can say, well, you have a property manager. Um, but then, you know, we had a couple of young kids. We were in a different state. We're running a business that was keeping me, you know, really busy. Um, and then... The building, you know, the house next door burns down in Dubbo, you know, as an example. And, and we didn't have a tenant at the time. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that, was a, that was a close one. You know, so that was where I went too far into really pushing the yield on that property and went into the really dodgy parts of town, bought up, mm. you know, properties there, Woody Nilly, and, and they ended up being an absolute nightmare for me. Okay, so we've really gone, as I said before, we've gone right to the ends of, of investing and strategy and pushing the, the boundaries. Um, in doing so, I've learned a lot of lessons that I probably have now applied to, you know, our conversations. You're sort of gaining the benefit of that, I guess. Um, that really sort of probably, I guess, personally spooked me a little bit where I am wary now of tenant dynamics. I don't like to have to manage managers. You know, sometimes if it's been a troubling property and it comes up for end of lease, I just whack it on the market. Um, you know, and that's how I've now filtered my portfolio down to blue chip properties that really don't cause me any stress. Um, yeah, and I found probably the interesting dynamic. I'm, I'm crapping on a little bit, Chris. I do apologize. but No, no, this is great. This is great content. This is awesome. It's probably an interesting dynamic because I found in Dubbo, um, I really was having to manage the manager. And they are in a, in a little, you know, in a, in a regional. So you can't go too small with these towns, you know, and you have to have population that's semi-transient because, uh, you know, our manager, I sort of got the impression that, you know, we would get maintenance requests every single week and they'll be for things like, you know, what are you calling me for about this? And it's as if they bumped into the tenant at the pub or at the shops on the weekend and the tenants had a complaint and they have to, you know, they have to form a relationship as friends in a country town with these, with, with the tenants. 
And so it's almost like we're the external party and it's like, yeah, no worries, man, I'll get this done for you. Don't worry about it. Um, and then, you know, on the side of that, any of the quotes that were coming back to you were coming from their other mate, you know, who's got, oh, you know, let's see what we can get this one for. Um, you know, so I found we lost a lot of the power dynamic uh, in those small regionals. Mm. Um, and that's something that we have to really manage with who we form as a team, um, how we structure that team and not going below, you know, that 20,000 people in the, in the city where it's, you know, you still have it's, you know, you think of it in terms of three suburbs joined together and not one suburb joined together. And in three suburbs, I mean, you're in Bondi there, Goose, you know, do you know anyone sitting over there and, you know, down in Maroubra, how far does your network as a local extend? Um, if it's only one suburb, then suddenly there's that, you know, uh, you know, they can suddenly start taking, you know, taking for a little bit of a ride. So, yeah, no, um, that's, that, that, that's really great insight. So just for clarity's sake, so the company that you run now is Ripe House Advisory. Now that kind of came off the back of, uh, Ripe House, which was actually a software as a service, public searchable, you know, tool that people could, could, could use. And that actually came off the back, if, if I'm not <laughs> correct, that came off the back of you just trying to basically work out how the hell to find these properties and what or, would all qualify, what, what the, I guess, what, what the conditional logic is, okay, which I, I find, find very fascinating. Mm. If this, then that. If this, then that. And if not that, then not that. And I love applying, part of the reason that, that we've always got along so well is my thought process is very much the same. I'm always conditional mm. logic. If it is this, then it is this. And if it is not that, then it is not that. And this is how you can create those uh, conditional logic pathways or algorithms. Mm. Now, do, you, do you mention 20,000 people as a, as a kind of like catchment size for a, an investable area? Is that still a view you hold or, or is, that, is that kind of a benchmark minimum for yourself? Uh. I, mean, I guess where do you draw the line? It's not as if we've just sort of sat around and thought, let's just pick a number and, and make that. I was probably just using that as an example. Yep. We need to have certain fundamentals and probably, you know, one of them is, is turnover. Uh, volumes need to be at a certain sustained level and diversity of employment. Um, so, you know, that's also probably going back to some of the lessons I learned earlier on where, you know, I was sitting here uh, going, wow, look at these people making some, you know, this money in Gladstone, you know, and I can still remember the cover on API magazine and, uh, you know, a young couple on there and they were talking about how they'd made these crazy returns and properties I bought for 200000 and now giving them 1500 bucks a week rent and I'm like, wow, well, you know, and then went off a cliff, you know, they, they went on the cover a year later, put it that way um, and that really sort of taught me some lessons about diversities, you know, reliance on industry and that sort of does come back to size of a city. I mean, Sydney's diverse, obviously, because of the size. So, um, you know, you sort of, where do you fall, draw that line? So it's not, we don't have a hard and fast rule of, of a number. It's of more, we, we have some categories around uh, yeah, diversity. Yeah, of uh, course. Of course, it's, re it's really interesting at the moment because, you know, I, I, I'm passionate about doing all my own independent research as well. And I love reading about areas and... Mm. understanding what's making different markets move. And I hear a lot of commentators at the moment um, talking about places like Mackay and Townsville and, and places like this. And, you know, for, for transparency's sake, I can see the value. I can see, mm. Mm. I can see the, the holistic um, perspective, that, that really full egg of like there's a lot of different things pointing, pointing towards um, a bit more stability. But you've still then got um, you've still then got the risks associated with you know size and, and major industry dependence and stuff yep. like that. So so it's I, I, I'm, I you know you know Mackay is an interesting story at the moment as well. And I'm just I can't yep. I can't quite 
I haven't quite been able to uh, stomach entertaining that that just yet because I think there's I think there's more diverse and better opportunities. But this kind of um, leads us into into where we're going now because we talk what we're talking about now is we're talking about actually is what is what is driving uh, the what is driving the benefits of certain areas now. Mm. In you know, if we were having this conversation two to three months ago, we'd be talking about uh, overarching fundamentals. You know, real uh, yields increasing, days on market decreasing, population diversity, economic diversity, uh, employment diversity, all of this kind of stuff. And we'd be we'd be having a, a very um, a robust conversation around that. And I believe that we could probably do that in in another podcast, and that would be I think mm. massively welcomed by by our listeners. But one of the big things that's happening right now, and, and, and as, as someone who runs a buyer's agency, so we have, we're advising people on, on where to invest and how to invest and why to invest, and this is something we've taken on board, and everyone in the, the, current, in the current environment is, is impacted. It's the big C, coronavirus. And what's that actually going to do? Because outside of normal uh, market forces, and when mm. I say normal market forces, I consider that to be everything except politics uh, and and macroeconomics because mm. they're kind of two. Mm. You can go, you know, if you look at some regional towns, for mm. example, places like uh, Bendigo and other other regionals um, through the GFC, when there was an economic downturn, they actually, you know, robustly maintained their growth trajectory and was was totally cool. But mm. what we're seeing, what we're seeing right now, though, is um, I guess a I guess a real anomaly. Now, you and I have spoken about this offline in the past about it sort of being a black swan event, and I, I've I'm I've taken a really passionate interest in understanding what's what's actually going on here. And you know, mm-hmm. we, we, we've got this really uh, really challenging situation where we don't we we don't have just a supply failure. We also have a demand failure in in the economic marketplace, which is. Yes. It's usually it's usually one or the other, right? And mm. and and then you can kind of lever up, but when you've got both, it kind of makes everything crash a little bit. Yeah, I think it's safe to say from my analysis so far. So we took a couple of weeks to step back and really just watch what everything was happening. From my perspective so far, I can I can kind of clearly yes. I can clearly see that not everywhere is being affected, or certainly not as much, and. To that degree, I don't think that it's not going to be a it's not going to be a a broad brushstroke collapse across every house in Australia is going to go down twenty or thirty percent. Absolutely. So let's start talking about some of the research that you did recently because I think this is really uh, enlightening. And mm. so let's let's start talking about that because because some of the questions you asked, which were really pertinent questions, mm. you know, mm. stuff like. When will property be hit the hardest? You know, which housing demographic is going to be the hit hit the hardest? What state? Um, what property sector? All of that kind of stuff. And what are the key impact mechanisms? So, did you want to um, did you want to start to expand on some of that kind of stuff and how you got to that? Yeah, let's jump in. I mean, pro- probably I'll just frame up really quickly what we do at a high level, just so you know what gaps we had to fill in with the report. So. Um, you know, Rypass, it did start off life as a software as a service, as you mentioned. Mums and dads could jump on there and pay a subscription to use the software. Um, we had about, you know, 1,400 people who were using the software at one point. 2015, we, we interviewed them and worked out that they, in the most cases, weren't using the software effectively. So two in every three properties they were purchasing, we didn't actually feel qualified, if, you know, and, and met the research. So that's when we've started working as a private advisory to professionals. And we feel like that is the most reliable way to transfer wealth 
from research to mums and dads, uh, investors. Um, it's working, you know, uh, the results are on the board, but uh, going on from that, we, you know, the assets that we have as a company, you know, we've got a great team of researchers, analysts, sort of software, you know, ex buyers agents, so experienced in the, in the property industry, um, but we have uh, outside of that in the technology space, we have a lot of data. So right from 2011, we made the decision like, look, data is, is king, let's own all of our own data and let's continue to constantly ingest as much data as we can get hold of. Uh, and then let's just run algos over that constantly to, to refine and to know. But that needs to be trained, okay? We need to be able to draw some goalposts to, to operate inside and that's when human opinion and, and uh, you know, uh, feeling needs to be, you know, to program it, right? So we don't touch the macro. Um, it's too many variables. It gets a little bit difficult for us. We're really good at comparing LGA to LGA or suburb to suburb or street to street. You know, it's difficult to put Australia in context. And that's why we felt there was a gap here in our knowledge. Uh, we were having conversation after conversation sort of a month ago about what do we think is going to happen. And we didn't feel comfortable actually being another voice into that mix with an opinion. So we thought, you know, if we go and ask, you know, one or two people, then you've got a, you've got a bias and you've got sample size issues. So why don't we go out to our extended network of property professionals and we ask them a, a framework, a structured set of questions that are going to get to the heart of what they actually feel and think. And you've, you know, we've had some really interesting perspectives from top end of town money managers in funds. You know, you know, we're talking managed funds. Uh, you know, finance managers, etc. Um, down to you know, valuers and professionals who are removed from the end client but still heavily involved in property. Uh, commentators, researchers, you know, REI members, etc. Academics, economists, but then also the people on the ground, property managers, sales agents, uh, buyers agents, dealing with investors and and, the, and other professionals on a daily basis. Um, so it was a nice broad spectrum. The power is, uh, I won't get into this, but we've been followers of Swarm Intelligence for a long time. So it's uh, MIT researchers for about six years ago, four or five years ago, um, they realised that the crowd is most often right. All right? So in 95% of the cases, a crowd of people is more accurate than the individual. Uh, they were able to sample a crowd of professional uh, horse gamblers and they were able to pick the first four runners in order of the Kentucky Derby. Okay, it's, you know, the mathematics of that are incredible. And so the swarm intelligence is what they use to do that, and we've actually built that in. It's very similar to picking the winner in the property space. If you ask the crowd and you have a, a framework of doing that, uh, you, can, uh, you can sometimes pick a winner. Um, we applied that a few years ago. I purchased Australian Property Investor magazine. Um, we applied that to being very close to a lot of investors and a lot of professionals and found that it worked. Um, we're able to sort of get into areas and start building our algorithms to be forward running and not sort of post running by seeing what people were saying when they didn't even realise they were saying it, I guess, and designing our algorithms to build that in. But that same approach is, is very relevant here. Uh, I'm going to a bit of a few, few different sort of... This is great. This is awesome. Here, I'm, I'm learning. It's fantastic. very relevant here with this report masses. You go to the crowd. Yeah, you go to the crowds and they're most often right, okay, and more often right than the individual. Um, so the key takeaways, we had 147 respondents. Um, is that sample size large enough? That's probably the question. We feel it probably is because they were quite uh, similar in, in the responses. Um, what was the, you know, the overwhelming opinion? New South Wales is going to be hardest hit due to concentration and density of population at the time. 
Uh, it also had the most corona cases, also potentially where it was in a cycle on the debt level. So that was the differing opinion. 78, 79% of the respondents said New South Wales. Um, lower socio outer ring of capital cities would be hardest hit, and they would potentially, the reasoning behind that uh, was around who, who were the residents, where were they employed, potentially casual workers in retail, tourism, hospitality. Can, can, I, can I ask a question Go around that? Can I ask a question around that, Jacob? Like, what when you say um, lower socioeconomic suburbs in outer ring of capitals, have you got some examples? Because I um I I haven't actually shared this with you, but there there's an uh, another research uh, report I read from a company called Digital Finance Analytics, a blog, right? So I, I, I don't know the depth of their credentials. Um, but they highlighted that uh, one of the high, the, one of the greatest areas. Um, that is experiencing mortgage distress and most likely to have forced sales is Cranbourne, Hoppers Crossing, stuff like that. So uh, I'd be interested to know because when you say lower socioeconomic demographic and outer ring, those are kind of ambiguous to some degree. Are we talking about are we talking about Ipswich or are we talking about Redfern or are we talking like how how outer ring and how lower socioeconomic? Yeah, it's I mean it's a good question. At this point, I'm really just talking about the the general buckets. Of responses, um, yep. and we we then I guess took it that extra step and broke it down um, with some data and some numbers behind it. So I, I think the, the general feeling coming from the experts that we interviewed uh, were was around in those outer ring like Cranbourne example, properties homogenous. It's all been built at a similar time. So the interesting point that Veronica Morgan actually mentioned it to me. She said, uh, you know, a lot of the people in these newer suburbs, these new precincts, they've all bought similar times. They've all got a similar size mortgage. Uh, their LVR levels are similar at a similar point. The properties are all quite similar, and they're typically in the same types of employment. So, if, you know, they might be tradies, or they might be in hospitality, retail, casuals, or the, or the. If the owners are not, then potentially the tenants are. Okay, so these are all impacted, you know, in a very standardised way. You know, I'm sitting here in Hobart, uh, the suburb that we live in, was actually been <laughs> very hardly hit actually because it's got a lot of Airbnbs, but you've got a lot of, a lot of younger tenants, hospitality workers, but you've also got some, you know. $5 million properties that haven't changed hands for 40 years. You know, so you've got complete ends of the spectrum. We're talking about suburbs that have, uh, when you're talking about Ipswich, um, sure you have some some borderline areas that are quite homogenous, but Ipswich is a regional centre. Internally, you've got a very a varied mix of property. Um, we're talking about the outer rings where the whole suburb has been created almost overnight. Lots of properties are similar. Uh, and if, if the variables are right, the whole suburb will be impacted. Quite strongly, mm. yeah. Um, so that so, so so that that so you're talking about the master plan communities, the larger state developments, and stuff like that, which is which is what would lend um, to support some of the other uh, research I've seen around Hoppers Crossing, for example. That whole that whole region, and so it's talking about that as an area, is a lot largely those kind of master plan estates that uh, I guess exactly leans into everything that you've just said. It's developed at the same time, probably similar debt levels, probably similar markets, probably similar. All of these kind of things, and that's actually a really great insight into, um, I, I guess, one of the things to to kind of be looking out for as well. So, yeah, look, it's it's um, you, you can probably also apply it to, you know, I, I know you've been active, and we we obviously don't name suburbs publicly, and, and that's you know costs us a lot of money to find suburbs, and and, and as it does for you, um, but I know you've been active in the in the Adelaide market over the last couple of years, um. 
when I'm talking outer ring, you've got the Elizabeth, you know, precinct. Elizabeth is not a it's not a master plan community. It probably was thirty years ago, and it was probably the government who had the master plan. Um, but you know, it, it is still homogenous and it is lower socio, and you've got a lot of workers there in casual workforce. Uh, you've got a lot of hospitality and retail workers in that area. Um, you know, so in the same way that that potentially, and, and I'm I'm just uh, you know, this is still at a at a, at a conceptual level, this conversation, we haven't jumped into the data yet, but that would still, I would probably classify as in the same way, where if you go five to 10 k's closer to the CPD way, you start bringing diversity into there. You've got some localised workers, you've got some industry, you've got some people who commute to the CBD, you've got different price points in the same suburb, uh, you've got one suburb more expensive than the one next door, uh, you've got diversity, diversity in employment, uh, and you've got new projects and, and diversity coming onto the pipeline. So, you know, sometimes it only takes five to 10 Ks. I think the general overarching concept here is um, when a lot of properties and residents are similar mm. uh, and they're at that price point where it's uh, they're quite sensitive to what's happening. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's good. That's good. Uh, so we've kind of touched on, so sort of what you alluded to there was um, areas that are affected mostly by unemployment. Uh, if you kind of got grouping, grouping by grouping by occupational kind of sector as well, you sort of mentioned you touched on tourism and hospitality and stuff like that. What are what are like we'll, 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 this conversation? We'll, we'll keep it swirling, and I like like where it's going. But what like what are the two biggest factors that you think in, from your research? I love the swarm intelligence. Actually, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I hadn't, <laughs> I'm not familiar with swarm intelligence, but I like it. I actually want to ask a question on that quickly. Yeah. Do you think that swarm intelligence, swarm intelligence is the cause or the effect? Because you've got that kind of, um, you know, that, that 13 monkeys syndrome where, you know, there's, if there's enough knowledge or expectation, it will start to transmute through uh, and permeate through society in an, in an, in a, um, mm. kind of unmeasurable way or whatever it is. So you've got that kind of thing. Do you think it is, do you think it is the group psyche which is dictating, say, oh, this area is actually better, or do you think it is the other way around? Do you think it's a cause or the effect? Oh, it's a really good question. Um, how, how we we probably um, how we probably framed it, you know, when we were developing the algorithm and the research is lower sophisticated gut feel is what we're trying to tap into as a swarm. Okay, so locals in an area, you know, you know the sort of you're you're living, you're a local expert. Okay, so you know that the new cafe is going in and it's changing the dynamic and everyone's talking about it. You, you know, there's a bit of a buzz happening and you know the local school's opening up and you're talking to tradies and they've all got work and they've got six months worth of pipeline. You know, you say in your suburb, I call them local area experts, you're a local area expert, okay? When you have a structured set of questions to that person, you ask 100 people in that area, uh, they will all be very intimate to what is happening on the ground and they will be the first to know of a change in a market. So they don't know anything about data or research or what's happening. So how do you become a local area expert for every suburb in the country? And that means you need to have a lot of data and you need to be a local area expert for every one of them. Okay, so we're not talking about the time it lands in a research report or it's on news.com. That's after all of the action happens. So firstly, the locals know. Firstly, there's something changing on a dynamic level. All the stars are aligning. Um, you know, the jobs are happening or diversity, you know, nice and diverse or, you know, population, utility, whatever it might be. All the, it all starts to happen and the locals are the first to know. How can you quantify that in a structured way? How can you then also see that it's starting to move the dial in the data and the research? How can you find your buy point? 
And then, you know, when all the experts and the highly sophisticated researchers, et cetera, out there who don't have access to timely data start catching on, they're following the data and not the, the original source. Um, that's potentially when you get out is, is how we've sort of typically done it. So probably to answer your question, low sophisticated gut feel is what we're trying to quantify with swarm intelligence. That is so fascinating. That is so fascinating because myself, I'm very data oriented. I like um, quantitative quantitative analysis. But yep. what you're saying there is basically you can have all of the data in the world, but it's really going to come down to intuition and gut feel, which is going to actually decipher whether the, like the actual true relevance of that information. That's, I think that's very, very fascinating. Yeah, look, we... Um, all we needed to do to, to actually work that out, and I'm sort of going to the secret source a little bit, is humans do the same thing over and over again. <laughs> you know, um, It's common sense or logic, and, and look, I have to be pretty blunt here. As property investors, you know, what I've found over the years is that they're driven by fear or greed. That's literally it. And I'm, I'm not so trying to sound harsh here. Um, you know, When I was operating Australian Property Investor magazine, we, we, we've got many tens of thousands of, of people that we're in contact with or seen at the site. And that was the overarching you know, driving factor. You know? And you know, to be fair, it was ambition was the stronger driving factor. So when we had a positive headline or a positive story, it, it, did, it did engage to a higher degree and fear was you know, the, the, the negative side to that. Um, we're all the same and that's not going to change. So my point is when you can quantify that and we can work out uh, you know, when the swarm is changing, how does that, that where, where at that point in time, what does it, you know, once we'll define this, the swarm is changing, sentiment has changed at a local level, what does the data look like? And once we work out that relationship, we don't actually need to track the swarm anymore. So I sold Australian Property Investor Magazine two years ago or 18 months ago. We don't need to track the swarm anymore because now we know the relationships. We've got the data. We know the point in time that we need to look for. Now we can just look for it. You know, so that's the, that's the time. The algo sort of points those you know, we, we here in the office, we have the algo tuning away and the bell rings, new suburbs, we jump, we jump on, on the ground, we sort of do the deep dive into the why and we build out the research from there. Um, but once you know the swarm, they act in the same way over and over. Fascinating. Um, That's yeah. fascinating. That's fascinating. Okay, cool. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm mindful of time because we could, we could literally talk for hours. We could talk for <laughs> hours and hours and hours. So, so what we've established is we've covered some really great ground so far. Now, Let's um let's start breaking it down, right? I I, I want to get into the into the meat and potatoes of of where you got to with this research. Mm. What the what you found to be the most um, eye opening, alerting, alarming, positive positives and negatives. You're like, you know, what what's it? You, you, you've you've smashed it all apart. You've put together a great research report. We're actually going to have that research report as a downloadable for this episode. So if you are listening to this, just head to theinvestorlab.com.au. You'll be able to grab a copy of the research report. I'll even buddy it up with a report that I did uh, on property investing in an economic downturn, which takes a look more at the macro level stuff, which is really, I think it's a great companion to the, to the stuff you put together. But mate, why don't you um, just get, let's, let's get stuck into it. Go for a yeah. free for all. Uh, definitely go through the report. There's a bit of, there's a bit of meat to it, as you say. Um, the really high levels were a couple of clumps of, of to avoid or high risk, okay? So once again, probably the overarching theme, you know, something that I've sort of known and, and using my portfolio, divert, low diversity equals high risk, okay? So that's probably the, the one theme to take away. Um, and really going forward, we've got to make sure there is diversity in everything that we do. Um, so the overarching, maybe the, 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 the concepts to avoid, obviously holiday homes, Airbnbs have been very hard to hit. 
Okay, so the, the first study that we did were suburbs that had more than 2.5% concentrations of Airbnbs uh, in them as of two weeks ago, three weeks ago. We drew the line in the sand, and obviously a lot of those have come off Airbnb very quickly. We've seen a 20% drop in Airbnb listings. Okay, they've just been you know, retracted. And what people have done is they've moved them from listing on Airbnb, suddenly they've got their whole pipeline cleared out, everyone's cancelled, they're putting them onto fixed price rentals, 12-month leases, fully furnished, um, here in Battery Point, the average three-bedroom house rents for 850000 Okay, we've just seen the, mar the rental market slammed with Airbnbs entering in at 650 fully furnished. Okay, so we've got nine, uh, hang on, the numbers are all swirling around in my head. It's, it's, it's a little bit more than 10% Airbnbs as a concentration in Battery Point. That's a, that's a lot of properties to hit the market. So what we did, we first sorted the suburbs based on Airbnb concentrations. Then we looked for yields and have they been spiking? So anytime we've seen a yield increase by 1% in one week, <laughs> um, that was obviously flagged to us. And then we also looked, have we started to see a decrease in the asking uh, rental price? Mm. Um, when we had started to see those things, we knew that that suburb has been very hard hit by Airbnb. Now, this is the interesting point, and this is probably the scary point, and, and Chris Gray mentioned in the report, look, we're only going to realise losses here if people are forced to sell. At the moment, we're not forced to sell. Um, but if we were, as a valuer, to go out and value, say, Battery Point today, if you were to use the income capitalization method, you're taking a haircut of 9.5% off values as of today in one week. So when you, I, I don't want to be alarmist. You know, we've been seeing the articles obviously being shopped in the last week or so around 30% reductions. Um, as of right now, if you had to sell in Battery Point, you would take a 9.5% haircut from, from our research, what we've sort of had to say. It's not to say you have to sell. You've still got a few months, obviously, with things to keep sort of rolling on. Um, and that's due to the yield, the, the income you're able to create from a property. Um, Kingsford in New South Wales is one of the hardest hit. Palm Beach, Balgola Heights, all of these have massive concentrations of Airbnbs and the rental markets have been completely flooded. Sure, but the 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 you know when you're buying and selling a property, you generally don't hinge it solely on the income. I understand it'll have an effect, but if you've... Seen, yeah. You've seen a rental price decrease of, let's say, 10%. That doesn't mean the property price goes down by 10%, does it? Uh, it does. It does. In, so when you um, – it's a good question. So typically it doesn't. When you've got properties turning over, properties worth what people pay for it, okay? And as you say, you've got own occupiers who don't really care what it's going to rent for. So a lot of people buying a property don't even really you know, mind what, it's, what potentially they could afford. Um, when you have low comparables, so I'm not a valuer, um, but you know, a member of my team is, is sort of uh, very experienced in, in this department. Um, when we have low comparables and we're looking to value a property, we use an income capitalization method. So they use it for commercial properties. Um, you know, when you ha when you have indirect comparables and you have to really, f you know, you're searching, you're seeking out. You can also flip over to, to value a property based on the income that it produces, and it's, it's, you know, there's a process in doing that. So what we've done in this case. Because we're talking with such a short time period, we haven't realised losses yet. We haven't seen transactions, you know, trending downwards. If we were to draw a line in the sand today without comparables, what would happen to the changes in value based on the income they can produce? Um, because when it's all said and done, um, you know, for the worst case scenario, you know, people are holding properties based on what income they can get from them. Um, and you know, you're sort of talking to people now that are in Airbnbs that are scrambling. How do we generate income from this property? You know, it's been generating excellent returns for us. Do we rent it out? Do we move into it? 
Uh, I spoke to someone yesterday who was speaking to me in the garage of their previous Airbnb that they've just moved into just to save rent in their current property or so, you know, to, they might be able to rent that out you know, more easily. They're generating income as any way that they can. So it's, yeah, I'm sort of going in a circle a little bit with what I'm saying, but it's only when people have to sell that the, the losses realise. But in the Gosh. between times, you can sometimes, you can work out value through income capitalisation. Mm, mm. Okay, so what we're seeing with the, the Airbnb story is we're seeing a lot more Airbnbs being put back into the market, mm. which is then, in, in a lot of cases, people are pushing that back into the fixed rental market or the, or the general rental market, which is driving vacancy rates up yes and driving rents down that's correct and when i say look there's 76 suburbs that are, that, are, that we consider are going to be you know to avoid and we're not talking uh you know if you can hold out and you're already own properties in those suburbs uh, i mean battery point here in, in hobart is one of them and, and that's a long tenure owner occupier suburb i mean you know the yield in this suburb is one and a half two percent okay so you know, not many people, if you were to rent a property, you're going to be impacted, but not many people are. But I'm, I'm probably more at a conceptual level. Um, these are the 76 suburbs that you need to be aware of that are going to be highly impacted by Airbnb going mm. forward. Um, that's the takeaway. Um, on the other side of the coin, you've got to look at, you know, outer rings, uh, those suburbs that have a high concentration of residents who work in retail, hospitality and tourism. Uh, we, we basically just... You know, we dialed up, show me all those suburbs that has that, that high concentration of workers in those industries. Show me the suburbs that we are already seeing uh, changes to vacancies and rents. Um, so, look, on the flip side, someone who's just now newly unemployed, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible set of circumstances that have eventuated. Um, we are already, within the first few weeks, seeing dramatic drops in many of those suburbs in asking rents. Okay, so you've just had, if you're, not in those, if you're not in those strongly diverse economies and, and a lot of these outer rings like, um, you know, the Elizabeth sort of region through Adelaide, high yields previously, we've already suddenly had a wholesale discounting of rents, you know, the lack of diversification, a lot of those uh, master plan type communities, et cetera. Um, you know, it doesn't have to sell. People don't have to turn over a tenancy for there to be a dramatic change in the asking prices of rents. You just have to have a spike in, you, in vacancy rates. It only needs to be one or two weeks of, now suddenly people are not looking for properties to rent in those areas and so, you know, suddenly landlords start dropping rents, you know, 10 20 $50, whatever it might be. Um, it happens quite quickly and we've already started to see that in, a, in, in another tranche of suburbs. Yeah, it's interesting because um, some other kind of narrative that's going on at the moment as well and, and something that I've, I've person, personally uh, seen is that the suburbs where... Um, it is actually lower socio, maybe not the outer ring ones, but the lower socio um, where the rents are, you know, maybe $300 around, yeah. that, around that kind of level are actually quite stable. Um, and, and I think that's largely driven by the fact that, you know, if, 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 someone, if someone loses their job and their current rent is $300 a week, the stimulus packages into into Centrelink. They've doubled Centrelink, so they've got they can actually still afford to do it. Okay, that's good. They don't want to Absolutely. lose. Nobody, nobody, nobody wants to. Nobody actually wants to lose where they live, right? So they will be like, "Look, I can still afford this, and it's all good." Vice versa, if you have someone um, who is say renting in Bondi, for example, mm. and they lose their job, and yes, maybe there's the job keeper allowance, or maybe there's, but their rent might be eight hundred, nine hundred dollars a week. 
And that proportionate amount is, is going to soak it all up and they can no longer actually afford to do it. So I actually seeing yeah. a lot of stability. Um, it's a different set of circumstances. What you're talking about is the master plan that, you know, the big broad, broad acre um, kind of development suburbs um, with less diversity. But I think, you know, lower socioeconomic in some ways is creating um, a lot of stability too, I think. Yeah, and you've got that natural that natural baseline that's formed and, you know, that the government sort of leak-ups are not really changing. Yeah. yeah so it's a really good point. Uh, the other consideration, so we're not talking about high growth, you know, so when we're talking about at an advisory level, we're all about finding these high growth areas. To be honest, they haven't really changed all that much. Um, probably the one, and this is probably going to sort of blow your mind a little bit, um, and then we're still investigating this, but... Right at the moment, and probably for the next 12 to 18 months, we have to completely remove population growth from our equation. Okay, so you think about Queensland as a, as a concept. Queensland is somewhere that we've typically, you know, why would you invest in Queensland, Goose, as a, as a property? You know, this, the first thing that comes to your mind. Oh, the first thing that comes to mind, um, I would say population growth, price point. I'll stop, the, stop you there. Population growth. What happens when there's zero population growth apart from natural attrition in Queensland? Because we don't have interstate or overseas net migration coming into, into the country or states anymore. Yeah. It's massive, it's, it's, it's massive, right? Because that's always been one of the big things from my side, you know, that we've, we've constantly been living in this um, supply deficit with the amount of uh, net migration we have coming in, net population growth, all of that kind of stuff. We've con- like for the last, whatever it is, four years, we've been at a deficit in what we're creating in new properties versus population growth, which is what's been driving that, Absolutely. that continuously declining vacancy rate, which is... You know, which is why you know we've seen we've seen mm. net, net vacancy rates drop from three percent to two percent nationally over over the last period of time, and all of this kind of stuff. But then all of a sudden, when you scoop that part out of it, and you say, "Well, we're not going to bring in any more people," what does that what does that mean? Absolutely, and and it's also the, the migration between New South Wales and Queensland or Victorian Queensland. If that just stops overnight, which it has, and it's not going to probably come back. It's going to be one of the last things that come back online is people being able to actually just up and leave and move. Mm. Um, you know, I know here in Tasmania, we've, we've got a lot of the front page of the Mercury is we've got a moat, right? We're not letting anyone in, <laughs> you know, as a state, you know, we'll, you know, that would be the last things that get switched on again is interstate migration. Um, so that sort of brings things back, you know, as you said before, just think of Moreton Bay as, as an example, you know, we've, we're not, let's not place it sort of on our, on our radar, put it that way. Um, it's, it's reliance on high population growth, you know, four or 5% in some suburbs, um, and high supply. It's just it has a lot of supply. And when you remove population growth and put a zero next to it, um, and you're still left with 4% supply coming into the pipeline, what's that going to do over the next 12, 18, 24, 36 months in somewhere like Moreton Bay? If you flip it over to... Um, so that, that's also that story. Uh, Moreton Bay is probably the extreme example, but that story is Queensland as a whole. Mm. What happens when you compare that to somewhere like Adelaide uh, Adelaide, somewhere we've been quite active in, where we can find yes, Adelaide as a as a or at a state level, you have one percent. You know, population growth is one percent. It's a longer tenured, uh, you know, gener- intergenerational wealth. You know, uh, they've never relied on population growth to drive property growth, but over the long term, it's performed very well. Okay, mm-hmm. so when you turn a one into zero in population side, it doesn't have a, as 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 large an impact, and you can still find those pockets that have very low supply and reasonably good population growth in somewhere like Adelaide. So it's 
you know, you've got one whole state being impacted dramatically and other states, we have to be a little bit smarter, I think, going forward about looking at those types of things. Tony, um, and it, it's a really interesting point you, you just said there. When you go from 1% population growth to 0%, 0% it's, not, it's not actually a massive jump as opposed to if you were to go from 4% to 0%. Yeah, vice versa, what we're seeing, um, certainly what I'm seeing on the ground at the moment uh, is some of the areas that we're buying in for our clients, whereas maybe a month and a half ago, the, the vacancy rate was 0.5%. Yeah. Now, let's just say that the vacancy rate doubles. It's going to double to 1%. Now, 1% is still crisis levels of housing shortages. You know, yeah, absolutely. And, and so, and so, you've got to you've got to like look at these things and go, okay, well, what actually what actually is the impact? Because if you said if you said we're going to have twice as twice as many properties vacant in some of the areas that we're buying in, twice as many, well, that's still only going to be a one percent vacancy rate, and there's still extreme levels of demand regardless of what's happening. And I think that there's yeah, there's definitely a lot more uh, to paint the picture with. That's for sure. Absolutely, and then then you look at at. at it probably needs to be a little bit more granular as well because some regionals have been hit by corona and it's literally just a fact of, you know, uh, you know, spiking infections. We've got, you know, a quarter of our state shut down here in Tasmania, 5,000 people in quarantine in the northwest. So that is an LGA that's now blocked off and that's obviously going to be hit in a different way to down here in the south of the state. So it does work in an LGA to LGA region. So some of the regionals have been harder hit and we can't control that as property researchers. I mean, that's COVID-19 coming in and we can't predict that. Um, but when you look at, you know, so we do have safe havens in, in, in the research. So you look at very diverse and varied employment, <laughs> you know, um, you have strong and healthy rental markets. So low vacancies, as you say already, uh, stable rents that haven't been impacted in the last few weeks. That's all we can draw the line on, what is happening there and today. So all of this data needs to be timely to the day. Um, we need very low supply. So assuming 0% population growth or 1% or very low, we need to have very low supply that was in the current pipeline. So these are not three or four percent new dwellings being built every year. These are zero or one or one and a half percent new supply in the pipeline. Um, so when you turn that dial for population, it doesn't throw things out. And also new projects in the pipeline. So we spend a lot of time, we, you know, we have over 100, 1,500 projects that we track on a national level constantly that, that's uh, in varied industries. We turned off all the projects that are in, uh, in retail hospitality and potentially tourism. So they came out of our sample and we left all the projects in health, in infrastructure, in commercial, in industrial, uh, you know, in farming and agriculture. We left all those projects in the pipeline, assumed they would still go ahead and then we were left with, you know, that's how we would now find our highest growth or highest uh, appealed suburbs. Um, nice. Yeah, so there's still, look, there's, there's always... A, those suburbs haven't really changed. You know, we have ongoing conversations because there's nothing, the, the, the dial really hasn't moved too much. They still are healthy markets. Um, I think that's been the biggest, that's been the biggest eye opener for me because when everything started really kicking off and there was a lot of uncertainty and I think everyone felt the same wave of like, whoa, what is happening here? Uh, and, 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 you know, I was in that boat too and I was like, you know what, I'm, I just, I think I need to just take a little step back and just, you know, rather than just being bullish about like, yeah, yeah, buy, 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 let's just keep buying properties. I was like, you know what? Let's stop for a second. Let's take a big deep breath and just have a little look. It's um, and I haven't, I haven't like the, it, it's not the, like the areas that have got the right fundamentals there are not really, they're not really changing. <laughs> it's um, so 
these are, we need to watch and wait. So the, the fundamental, the, the good areas, the fundamental areas, I think that would be, you know, we're talking about Australia as many thousands of markets. The good fundamentals, uh, the markets we're targeting now as researchers, you know, they are, you know, that they are, they will hold up. Um, and they, they should hold up relatively well. You think about the other markets where people are forced to sell, and we saw it in crypto, right? So I've, you know, I've always been followed stocks and equities and, and crypto very closely, just because it's a pure market. You know, when you have parabolic growth, uh, things come off very quickly. So the story that I heard uh, in the crypto world were, you know, hairdressers were going and get ten thousand dollars personal loans to buy Ripple, right? It was a cryptocurrency in two thousand seventeen, and when you hear low sophisticated investors causing parabolic growth in you know, in a, in a, in a, in a market, um, it's obviously going to hit the top pretty quickly because sophisticated investors will see that as an exit point. Okay, and as soon as sophisticated investors, people who don't have to sell, start selling and they cause the sell-off, they take their profits, less sophisticated investors or people who have to sell start selling en masse. And then it's catching a falling knife because you have to get in quickly to sell and people are trying to beat each other to that sale. So. My only point in, in that is in the markets where people have to sell in six months' time if they do, if this goes you know, in, in a bad way, in the worst-case scenario, that's when you start seeing people really trying to beat each other to, to sell and they start undercutting each other and taking whatever they can get and it can fall very quickly. So at the moment, we're in, a, in, a, like in the eye of the storm a little bit. Um, the good markets will hold up irrespective, but those markets that people have to sell in could come off very quickly. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm not trying to be alarmist, but I'm just sort of. It's it, that's only a, that's only a certain percentage of the country, though. I'm talking twenty or thirty percent of markets will come off very quickly. We, we're not going to invest in those. No, um, ex- exactly, exactly right. And I think that that's um that's an interesting point as well because a lot of people who are talking to me about like, right, you know, the market's going to crash. Let's go and scoop up all these bargains. And and my personal perspective on it is, if I see an area crash by thirty percent. I'm not actually sure that that's where I want to be going to invest. Yeah, you're right. Because that says Absolutely. to me that says to me that there is an underlying structural economic issue that that has has too much single point sensitivity. There's a whole bunch of other stuff. I'm like, I'm not sure if that is where I want to go put my money. Absolutely, absolutely. So, and that's a really good point. And those markets that are that are well insulated, we we've we've seen some discounting in those. Okay, so. You know, you're active, we're active as researchers in the markets that we feel have very high performance potential. Uh, we have seen a 5 or 7% softening in some of those asking prices, and that's just a factor of people having doubt and questioning, but the underlying strength is still in those markets. So you can pick up a good deal as of today, and those markets potentially are, you know, um, going to weather the storm quite well. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think you touched. I think you touched on a good point. A good deal, because and I've had to course correct quite a few people lately. Where they're yeah. like, unless it's twenty percent off, I, I'm not. I'm not interested. And it's like, hang on, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's actually take a little look at this because a good deal might be. You may you may find that you can secure a deal five, maybe even ten percent under genuine, um, you know, real ostensible, you know, market value to some degree. Yes. The, the, you've got to look at the value proposition. You got to get: is it a good deal? You know, a size, a size fifteen pair of shoes at half price is 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 not going to be a very good purchase if you've only got size nine feet, right? So you've got to really, you got to really look at what the what the value proposition is and if it's going to be the right thing for your portfolio. So, so I mean, you, you touched on it before. Do you want to be? Do you want to involve yourself in the game of catching a falling knife? 
okay? Because you don't know how far that knife's going to fall and you're going to get cut up pretty badly in doing that. Um, if you're focusing on good, strong fundamentals, you know, you can get a nice entry point into those strong fundamental markets now. Um, do, do you want to wait around for 20%? You know, is it ever going to happen? Um, when you're looking at these properties, is the yield stacking up? Um, is that unaffected? So are vacancies stable, very low? If they double, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world. It's going from, as you say, half to 1%. Um, you've got very strong projects in the pipeline, low supply, diverse economies. You know, these are great markets that we were buying in anyway. If you can get a 5 or 10% discount in those, that's awesome. If you can't, it's still awesome. Yeah. Okay? You've got strong yield. You go into a property where you've potentially got cosmetic rental opportunities. You can value add. You can de-risk things from another 5 or 10% haircut later down the track. Um, and you position yourself for... You know, if not growth, you know, stability, you know, in the next 12 months, um, you know, that, that's, that's probably the other way of looking at it because we do have the opportunity right as of today to enter into a lot of these markets with a discount. Um, Absolutely. And I think, that he, I think that, you know, realistically, you're going to have two outcomes by buying in those markets. You're going to have two potential outcomes. Either you're just going to be buying, it's going to be very nice and stable and solid and it's going to do what it says on the box. It's going to do what you want it. The other, the other upshot is, and this is a very unknown and the time will tell, but if we do mm. see a strong rebound in a market o overarchingly because we do have very strong economic fundamentals like low interest rates and all of these kind of things, they're more likely to, to actually see the benefit because they're not, they're not chasing their tail. They're not chasing their losses to bring themselves back up. So they'll see, they'll see more of an impact of the rise, I think. That's my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good underlying assets. It's still, you know, I, I just keep relating things back. And surprisingly, not many people do this in, in Australia, but they do a lot overseas. Property is just like any market. You just, you know, equities, shares, there's a conversation that he's had with equities and shares. It's far more advanced than people in property. It's, it's, it's the same thing that's happened, you know, it happens day in, day out in equities and they have words for it. <laughs> you know, that we don't seem to be in property, but if you focus on a market um, and it's good, Good underlying fundamentals. That's that's your fundamental analysis. If your technical analysis can get you to the buy point, you can buy. You know, you still have to then rely on the fundamentals longer term, and that's that's your safety net. Um, Hundred yeah. percent agree. Hundred percent agree. Well, mate, I want to um, I want to wrap this up in a moment, but I would love, um, given the 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 research that you do and your perspective personally as an investor, mm. I mean, I would love to I'd love to know where do you think this is all going to go. Do you think this is going to? Do you think we're entering into a long, dark winter, or do you think it's going to be a short, sharp hatchet stroke? And and feel free to just just this is just your opinion, right? So this is not going to. No one's going to be chasing after you and go. Well, Jake, <laughs> Jake, Jacob said this, therefore X. And I would love to know your personal opinion as someone who's pretty financially literate. You watch other markets. You've got a, you and I have had robust discussions around economics and stuff before. Where do you think it's going to go? And also, what is your advice? to uh, average everyday investors in the market right now? What would you tell them to do? Buy, don't buy, wait, hold, um, whatever. <laughs> this, is, this is free, free for all for you. Yeah, um, look, there's some conflicting stories here. So I think this is very serious to start with. Uh, and it's probably more in context with where, you know, we're, we've been on an 11-year bull run in the stock market, you know, um, where we're heading towards the top of a longer. This is a. This is a. This is not a shorter cycle. This is a longer-term debt cycle, and where we were heading was to coming to the point of that. So, but we were we were overdue for a correction of some sort. Uh, how does that flow through into property? Um, 
you know, we've, we've had a pretty strong bull run in property. And, you know, I've just sort of seen it time and time again where, where you have strong bull runs, you do have corrections. So we were overdue for it in some way. Um, I just said that as an opportunity. And I, I'm not going to quote um, Warren Buffett because I've seen it a thousand times on Facebook, but there's strong underlying fundamentals. It's not the time to go out now and start researching those. You've got to stand on the shoulders of giants. Now, the people who have been researching this for five or ten years or buying in these markets for, you know, for, you know, professionally uh, that can go to them in a second and leverage all of that research over many years. It's not the time to now start researching shares for the first time or property for the first time and think you're going to catch a falling knife, okay, because you're probably going to get – there's no second chances when markets are correcting, right? You've got to get this right the first time. But there was, when you get it right the first time, this is when you do – um, by the dips. This is when you do set yourself up for the next growth cycle in good quality, strong fundamental assets. Um, yeah, I'm sort of going around in circles a little bit on that, but probably for me personally, I'm, I'm keeping my powder dry a little bit just for the moment um, because I'm not buying, uh, you know, the, the deal that I spoke of before, um, I don't know how public this is going to be and if he's listening, but I know he's in the entertainment industry. I know he's sweating. I know it's a high price point. You know, when you're starting to talk with the, the individual properties at that sort of level, there's a lot of personal factors that come into the vendor and the deal and the numbers. I'm personally letting him sweat because I know no one else is coming along with another offer on that property at the moment. Okay, so that for me, I'm keeping my powder dry. I'm going to make him sweat for the next few months and then I'll come in uh, and hopefully scoop it up. There's no rush. Okay, it's a good quality asset. This is the time to buy it. For... A $300,000, dollars $400,000 assets in a strong growth you know, market, the ones we spoke of before, those diverse, these are the assets you want to set your portfolio up for the next growth cycle in. Um, it comes down to the individual deal. If you can get a good deal now, if you can find one vendor who is distressed, who's, who's Armageddon-ish, um, don't listen to them, buy their property. Okay, Get the 5 to 10% haircut now and set yourself up for the future. So still buy those those good assets, don't go out and potentially uh, you know, start your research now for the first time because you're going to be too late for the party. You need to be doing that two years ago. You know, When you see markets moving and going upwards, that's the time to start buying the dip, not buying the dip when it's happening. Um, yeah, that's probably my points. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, mate, I've really enjoyed this um, episode. And I think it's going to bring a lot of value to people. Um, I think this is going to be actually really enlightening and, and it's really cut through quite a lot of stuff. So I want to say thanks for, for being part of this and, and I'd really welcome the opportunity to, to have you on board again in the future because I think there's a lot of value that you can bring to, um, to our audience and to, to investors at large. So thanks. My pleasure. Sorry to get into a bit of detail there, guys. It no, sometimes it's perfect. Gets to- Gets me talking, and uh, I love the work that you both do. It's a it's a privilege to be able to come on and, and talk to your audience. No, um, it's 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 absolutely. It's I think I think we nailed on some really good stuff because a lot of the time we go quite esoteric and we talk about you know high level thinking and and uh, you know emotional positioning and stuff. And it's really good to get down into the weeds a little bit as well. And as we mentioned, we're going to have a downloadable. So the um, COVID nineteen versus. Uh, property research report that Jacob has put together as well. So you can download that and get some insights into the research, the the uh, swarm intelligence and all of the other factors that have gone into that, which I think personally found it extremely enlightening. Uh, and I hope that helps. And for those who want to take this a little bit further, you can reach out to us, of course, at theinvestorlab.com.au and also www.dashdot.com.au if you need help to navigate this current market. And as ever, look forward to seeing you on the inside. Thanks, guys.